Good morning, LCM. Today's date is March 20th, 2022. Our sermon title this morning is A Tale of Two Houses. A Tale of Two Houses. This morning as we begin, we want to express the sincerity of our love for you first as the body of Christ. Can look out, Judah and I can look out to you this morning and sincerely point to you and say, you are the real body of Christ. Amen. The life that you're living is a real testimony to who Jesus is, and we want to say that we're proud of you. We also want to say this morning that as we look out, we can honestly say that you have become our real and true family. Amen. We want to express how appreci appreciative we are that as we look into your faces and into your eyes, we can see the real family of Christ and our real family with you this morning. That being said, we want to start with 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 15 as we continue this morning. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Saints, depending on the day, we are fragrant to some of you. And on another day, we are a foul stench to others. It is our endeavor to be a fragrant smell to you today. One that is bringing about sincere life that comes from speech that is sincere before God, truthful as it is. Our God will show us today what it looks like to be a fragrant offering. He will show us what he desires from our lives and how we can please him with this life that we live. You know, in order to encourage you guys in the way that Pastor Judah is talking about, what we're going to speak to you about this morning is the concept of faith. Faith is what you usually hear me preach about. A faith, a deep faith, a foundation in the Lord God Almighty. A faith that says no matter what comes into my life and no matter what is going to happen, what's going to happen in the future, I'm going to stand on faith in my King Jesus Christ. You guys agree with that? Yeah. Well, that may be true. An enormous topic in our church rightly so, is what it is to fight. Because this whole Christian world speaks and preaches about faith to nauseam, and it produces no actual change or life in Christ. You know, let's go back to faith for a moment, though, Pastor Judah. Faith, meaning you guys as the body of Christ, should be filled with a content trust. You know, really... When you're filled with a content trust, nothing can stop you. When you're filled with a content trust, you are sure that what the Lord's will is is going to happen. You're sure of what you hope for. You're certain of what you do not see. In fact, I have a couple passages on this concept, starting in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to read verse 17 and 20. 17 says, You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. 
Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Church, of course the Lord has actions for them to do. But what was the central point in this passage? That if you stand firm in your faith, you will see the Lord's deliverance in your life. Somebody say amen. Amen. Skip down to verse 20, and I'll prove it to you this morning. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. And they set out. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and the people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. Faith is what we need more of, church. Somebody say amen. amen. If you have faith in the Lord your God, you will always be upheld. If you have faith, you will always be successful. I'd like to read one more passage, if that's okay with you, Pastor. I, I know is near and dear to many of you like it's dear to, near and dear to me. I'll be reading out of the NIV 84 because it says it better than the 2011 version. I Psalm, agree with that. <laughs> Psalm 138 verse 8 says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. As in faith in the purpose of the Lord for your future. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the work of your hands. Church, the purposes of the Lord for you will stand. He will not abandon the work of his hands in your life. It's because you have the faith for it. You believing that God will do this will make it happen. Somebody say, say amen with me this morning. Amen. amen. Come on, amen. One more time. Amen. Pastor, I would like to remind you that in the passage in Chronicles you just read, there was something that was required. It was not just their faith that delivered them. They had to actually stand up and fight and do what God said. You know, when we have a message that is centered just around your faith, it does not do it all. Revelation 3, 5 through 6 says this, Pastor Nick. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Yeah. Says the one who conquers, yeah. not just the one who believes. Saints, I believe in Jesus Christ. But something you need to understand, a problem that we have, is that belief alone does not cause you to conquer. You must fight. Could you hear it in Assad's intro this morning? Born of the Spirit of God that you must go into strict training? Do I have some men in this room who understand what it is like to fight? Thus they will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. It doesn't say the one who believes. It doesn't say the one who has faith. It says the one who conquers, he will confess his name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want to tell you this morning that your faith is not all that you need. The scripture clearly says, he who conquers is the one these things will happen for. It is the fight that you should be concerned with. You should be constantly testing yourself to see that you are in the faith. Your faith shows up in your fighting, and that is what is important. Consider Achan and Joshua's day. Man, they were full of faith, full that their 3,000 men would conquer the city of Ai. But as it turns out, they didn't have enough fight to deal with the sin in their camp, and their faith was useless. Fight is your real problem, LCM. Once again, just because 
Mr. Osad read it before the service started. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 says this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Let's be real, people. Why would they be running unless they had the faith to win? But it did not come down to their faith to win. Only one gets the prize. The one who fights hard enough to win. Pastor Nick, they all had faith to get that prize. That was not all that they needed. What they really needed to do was fight. The verse goes on to say, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games, it says, who competes, not just has faith, goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it. We fight. We go into strict training to get a crown that will last forever. Paul clearly understood that fighting is what will produce an eternal crown. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. What about you, LCM? Are you staring at the stars in faith? Just like all of the runners who lost? In faith that God will bring about your promise? Verse 27 says, No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. You faith Christians get nothing done. You do nothing. You accomplish nothing. In fact, that kind of preaching reminds me a little bit of the Church of Christ. And you're still dead in your sins, disqualified through apathy. Men of God fight like Paul did. All of you really need to turn and fight exactly like the Apostle Paul did. Well, Pastor Judah, now I can certainly appreciate what you're saying here, brother. I really can. Good. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I, I really also think that you're missing the whole entire point. Paul himself was fighting against this exact concept that you're espousing this morning. Because the believers in his day, they were depending on their works for their salvation. And what they needed was faith above all other things. Listen to how he put it in Romans 4.13. He says to the church, it was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. But through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, listen to this next part, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. See, if faith is not number one, if, if faith is not the primary goal that you have, then everything else that you have is worthless. Because law, i.e. your own works of righteousness, they bring wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. If you're fighting for your own salvation then the word clearly says that the promises of God in your life, they're worthless because you're leaning on your own right arm and not trusting him for what he can and will accomplish in your life. Now, your fight for your own works of righteousness. This passage says that they will actually bring his wrath upon your life. When you pursue righteousness as if it were by works, you're destined to stumble over the stumbling stone. Jesus Christ himself said that. Nick, I have to admit it's a bit embarrassing how narrowly focused you are. That we're having to handle this up on a stage this morning. 
After 14 hours of sermon prep, you still don't understand the breadth of what Paul was speaking about. 1 Timothy 1.18, also written by the Apostle Paul, says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight. We all know that you have to believe, but faith is not the primary motivator here. He says you must fight according to the prophecies. Same guy who wrote Romans, but in the writings, Nick, the Ketuvim, where he shows you how to walk out the will of God. He says you must fight. All right, church. You know what we're doing this morning. Your pastors this morning, of course, do not have strife with one another. No, not at all. I love this man of God. We're doing what we're doing in order to illustrate a point for you. All of you would have agreed wholeheartedly with either of our two messages being spoken, if it was just one or if it was just the other. Is that true? In fact, many of you, during our introduction, began to divide into your own camps based on whose message you leaned on the most. Am I not right? Oh, it was kind of funny. We're watching little camps of Democrats and Republicans show up. <laughs> Guys, let us read 2 Timothy to you. This is chapter 4, starting in verse 6. It says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. Come on. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The faith. <laughs> Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Church, in light of this verse, understand something. Underemphasizing either of these points, the good fight or the faith, it's not what God intended, and it leads to compounding errors and increased ramifications. Something that we want to address with you today. Something that we get narrowly focused on and are unable to fully emphasize in the way that the scripture does is both the necessity of faith and of the fight. So when we say of faith, we mean like Abraham who believed despite what he saw. We mean of men who stood in the promise and believed that God would move regardless of the circumstances. By fight, we mean... And like David, like Samson, like Jephthah, that heard the word of God and were willing to do all physically in themselves to accomplish it as the Lord directed it. See, we like to divide into camps about what we lean towards. And honestly, there are camps all throughout the room. Just for the fun of it, the two of us switched this morning what we have previously been studying in the week. So what I have been personally wrestling with is the need for faith to grow. What has been personally happening there, Gina Camp, is a greater fight has been growing. Although that would not be characteristically what we would preach on. <laughs> if you looked at both of the things that we speak on historically. So with the need in mind to actually fight in a righteous manner. And to actually keep and hold faith in an ongoing fashion. We would like to begin with a tale of two houses. Somebody say two houses. two houses. 
We'd like to begin with a tale of two houses this morning, starting with the house of Kish in 1 Samuel 13, 6 through 12. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went down to greet him. Guys, we want to interact with this a little bit. I want you to back up from all of these sermons that you've heard over the years, over 3,000 years of them. Saul started as a man that was hiding behind the baggage when he was found. Hiding from the holiness of God. Hiding from men of God. Nothing about him was kingly in his stride. But something happened to Saul. Saul had an encounter with the Spirit of God that changed him into another man. Saul had fight in him. He is there currently in this chapter to contend with the enemies of Israel. He is no longer hiding. He's standing between the Philistines and a defenseless Israel even as his men begin to flee. Think about who could have run. Saul could have run. He could have hidden himself with his men. He could have gone somewhere else like the other side of the Jordan. But instead, where is Saul in this passage? Saul chose to stay when the situation was critical and most of Israel was fleeing. Honestly, wrestle with this for a minute. Yeah, you guys are beginning to get this, but listen to what we're about to say here. Saul, he had a transformational experience that took him from being a coward to the king of Israel the king of God's chosen people. Saul is in a critical situation in this passage, and guess what? Everybody else is running, and he's not. He's standing in the middle of the fight. His men are hiding among the rocks. That's kind of like the imagery that is similar to what we read about in Revelation and the coming of the Lord. But Saul's there in the fight. His men are fleeing to the other side of the Jordan. They're not even staying in the country. They're fleeing far away because they're so scared. But he doesn't flee, church. He stays where Samuel told him to stay. He waits the full seven days. Hey, what is seven? Somebody, you worked in your hermeneutics class. What is seven? Yeah, he completes those seven days. When the time was up, he doesn't run away. He doesn't resort to idol worship, what does he do? He actually makes an offering to the Lord in hopes that he is going to gain favor from Yahweh God. Saul is doing significantly better than any of us on a given day, isn't he? He's doing significantly better here in this story than you on most days. You see, we are Saul, church. Those who have had a transformation those who have learned to pick up a sword, we're no longer running from the enemy. What Saul did not have, though, was the faith to trust in the Lord. 
the faith to believe in the ultimate outcome. Yeah, you were very quiet, but I watched you when it hit you. That Saul is doing better than your last couple of weeks. Look, we're not just preaching to you, we're preaching to ourselves. I'm telling you, this is born out of our own weekly studies. The man was standing in the fight and had not fleed. Righteousness was not credited to Saul in the end because he lost hope or faith in the promise of God and his belief in the one who did call him, did transform him, did make him a king, was snuffed out by the anxieties of life. The tale of the house of Kish is going to continue in verse 11 and 12. I'll read it for you as Nick picks up afterwards. What have you done, asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. Notice he's still not talking about running. He's talking about seeking the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. The truth of the matter is, as we read these two verses, Saul sought something that he already had. He already had God's favor on his life. He already had the promises of God about him and about his generations to come. The Lord had already spoken to him about these things. But his fight, it brought him up to this point. Listen to me, church. His fight brought him to this point. He was able to have a genuine salvation experience with the Lord Almighty, and he had learned how to fight all the way to this point. But what was his downfall? His lack of faith is what caused his fall. Saints, I am so much like sinful Saul in so many ways. His life up to this point was characterized by a fight for the will of God. And it characterizes most of us in this room. Your fight has brought you here, brought you up to this point. But your fight alone is not enough to carry you into the transformation that is still yet required on the journey ahead. We'd like to tell you a tale of a second house. The house of Aaron. Turn with us to 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 11. Yeah, you can say tale of two houses when you get there, or as you're turning there. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Guys, we need to clinch with this passage for a moment. Because Eli was a priest of the Most High God. That's who we're talking about here. He was an actual descendant of Aaron. He had the promise of his line ministering before the Lord forever. This is much like Isaiah 59. 21, which is a family scripture for the Stephens. 
Eli was anointed. When he prayed for barren wombs, guess what? They were opened. Yeah. His sons. Sorry. His sons were wicked. And as terrible as that is, many of you may not know that 1 Samuel chapter 2 records him delivering a rebuke to them because of their behavior. Did you know that? Have you thought about that? He had wicked sons, and the scripture records him standing up, being moved by a righteous standard, and delivering a rebuke. His sons, of course, failed to listen, but he is not recorded as giving tacit approval to the situation. Despite his failings as a father with his natural sons, he seems to be a good father to his disciple named Samuel, who's learning to hear from God at Eli's instructions. When Samuel receives a word that Eli knows in advance will not be pleasant for him to hear, he still instructs Samuel to deliver the word fully and not to compromise in his convictions. Eli had demonstrable faith in the Lord's promises, demonstrable faith in the Lord's ability to move in a given situation. And he had the faith to hear from God and teach others to do the same. Eli's faith had gotten him up to this very point. Now listen, as we honestly wrestle with this, Eli, he was chosen before he was born to minister. He was faithful in his duties at the tabernacle, not negligent. He had a real anointing as the ambassador of God that healed men. He did a good job as a disciple maker. He rebuked his sons for their wicked behavior and didn't just pretend it wasn't happening at Thanksgiving. And he accepted the Lord's discipline in his own life when it came. Eli is doing significantly better than any of us on a given day. Than most of you on a given day. But saints, we are Eli in a sense. Those who are called and chosen by God. You have faith in his ability to work in your situation. You have trust in his promises. And encourage others in the pursuit of his word. What Eli did not have was the fight to go far enough. He was not willing to fight until there was lasting change in his household. He was moved by a righteous standard and delivered a rebuke, but that was where the fight within him ended for his family. The word of the Lord in the scripture clearly states that Eli and his family were judged for the sins that Eli knew about but did not fight hard enough to eradicate from his family. Look, I want you to think about that for a moment. This morning is a tale of two houses. The sin that you know is present in your own house and in your family, but you are not going far enough to eradicate. What do you think will happen to you if you don't deal with it? We want to highlight something to you that is not immediately in the Peshat, at least in English, in the verses of 1 Samuel. The text in verse 13 says that Eli failed to restrain them. 
That word restrain is the Hebrew word on the slide behind us. So this is number 3543, and this word is kaha. Kaha. Somebody say that with us. Kaha. Kaha. The first and primary definition is this. A verb meaning to faint, to be dim, to be expressionless. Look at this next one. It is used of something becoming weak, unable to function or respond. Jacob's eyes were dim or expressionless, while Moses' eyes did not experience this diminution. Look down a little bit. It is used in an emphatic verbal construction to emphasize a person's eyes being Being extremely weak there it is or blind from Zechariah. Okay, now look at the second. The second says a verb meaning to rebuke, to correct a person. It is used to the future of Eli to rebuke or correct his sons for their wicked behavior in 1 Samuel 3.13. So, guys, look, look at this for a moment. This is the same word used to describe Eli's eyes failing. There is actually a, wor- a Hebrew wordplay going on, and you can see that from this slide here. Eli himself failed to cause sin to cease in his function, to cause sin to be faint in his own home. So he was unwilling to fate to, I'm sorry, why don't you get that? He was unwilling to fight hard enough to restrain his own home. So saints, catch this. It's a Hebrew word play. The word for Eli's failing eyes is the same word that God charges him with in regard to his inability to put a kibosh on, to cease the function of to diminish until it no longer happens, sin in his home. So God began to progressively restrain Eli's eyesight as he failed to do his job until he personally could no longer see even in the physical. There's a lesson here. The longer you turn a blind eye to the sins of those around you that you are responsible for, the more that your own eyes become weak, weaker, and eventually totally blind, leading to a lack of vision or direction within God's house because it started in your house. We must have the fight to cure the disease before it blinds us permanently and we are unable to fix the situation. Christian, 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 how long has your home been out of order? It's time to hurry right now. Hurry up and make right order while you can still see. It's like an advertisement for Asherman Memorial. We'll fix your brakes. Stop on by if you still can. (laughs) Yeah, think about that for a moment. (laughs) Church, we're, we're about to make a turn here. We're actually about to make a turn and help you to focus on the fact that we need both. You need both here this morning. Errors are the natural result when we underemphasize either faith or we underemphasize the fight. Come on. To fail in either is to produce death to you and to your own household. 
See, Saul brought death to Jonathan. Eli himself, he brought death to his sons. We cannot ignore any one scripture or aspect of our walk with Christ. We're meant to live in the tension between two things, the faith to trust God's working and the fight to do what he has said for us to do. The Gospel of John offers no two identical prescriptions to any problem that is encountered. The Son of Man, the Bar Anash, Messiah, God incarnate, has demonstrable, immovable faith in his Father's workings. He just would not be moved unless the Father had spoke because he trusted his God to bring about the right outcome. This is in direct contrast to Saul, a man who could not hold his faith in the midst of these difficulties, although Saul was willing to fight. And our Messiah also demonstrated the fortitude to fight until the very end. Unlike Eli, he grit his teeth in the garden. He stood and he did what God had called him to, carrying that cross the whole distance. Well, we as Gentiles have been born from above into a new line, one birth of supernatural power. Nothing about our work has anything to do with balancing the two, no more than Messiah did. But rather is an awful tearing, an awful tearing in our soul and a wonderful tension. A tension between the faith that credits us with righteousness and empowers us beyond sinful behavior and the very real fight that we must engage in on a daily basis to win. We must emphasize, we must learn to preach and practice 100% of these two truths. We must learn to live in them without rejecting either of them, but possessing both like weapons of righteousness. We need both supernatural faith and supernatural fight working powerfully within us. So listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 12. It says this, fight the good fight of the faith. Which one do you want to leave out? Oh, come on now. Fight the good fight of the faith. Both are present and work together. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and the only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Come on. Guys, We want to make fun of something for a moment. We want to make fun of just accomplishing one out of these two things. It's impossible. It's against what God has ordained for us to do. Look, simplistic Christianity says, oh, it's all about faith or it's all about the fight. Guys, it's time to grow up. It's equally about both this morning. Yeah, let me put that in some real practical terms. So you've realized over the last two and a half weeks that there's desperate need for growth in you as a leader. In addition to that, you've realized that there's desperate need for transformation in your home because it's the result of your leadership. 
So some of you, you, you come home from the sermon and you're like, I am going to fight until I get this thing done. <laughs> then some of you on the other side of the stage over here are, I am deeply concerned about this. I'm going to rebuke it. And now I'm going to pray until God changes her heart. Eli, Saul. See, we cannot be simplistic Christians. We need to understand the full gospel. We need the full gospel in its actuality in us. To be able to have faith that is immovable, that is crying out to the Father, that understands the final outcome is, He will rescue my home. And all the while, you never stop fighting until it changes. Amen. We must possess both, like a right and a left hand. We need to understand what our God is calling us to. And the reality is, if you look at your last two weeks soberly, you were one or the other. The smallest deviation from either the smallest deviation from having both of them is sin. Remember, Psalm 34 says both to turn yourself from evil, i.e., be faithful to turn to your father and do good. In fact, that's only half of what Psalm 34 says. But we're sticking with two subjects today. It is possible for you to turn to do good, but still have evil inside of you. I'm a testament to that at times. It is also possible for you to turn and try to remove the evil inclination, but then it never results in actual right action. We need both faith and fight this morning. You see, in light of what Pastor Judah is saying, we are understanding Romans 4 that we read earlier this morning in a brand new kind of way. As awareness of this grows of our own unrighteousness. Listen, you immediately begin to discover that fighting for your own arm to bring about righteousness and to bring about the promise, it's absolutely worthless on its own. Somebody say amen to that. It must be coupled with utter dependency on the one who can credit you with right standing and who can provide grace to become more than who you currently are. Come on. You see, come in, some in this room are just like Eli. You'll wait on the Lord to change your own condition or the condition of your household until God blinds you for your own apathy and lack of action. Others in this room, you're so unfaithful just like Saul was. You don't trust the Lord to fulfill his promises and you make your own sacrifices. Sacrifices that make you feel useful or better. And they actually serve to tear the kingdom of God away from you. Saints, we believe that you are capable of holding both. Anybody in the room, raise a hand for me. Now raise another one. See, you are capable of it. You're going to have fight and faith this morning. Your God has given you a gift of brothers on your left and right. Some happen to be more gifted in one arena or the other. But we all need each other and we need the full gospel. We must both fight until we see lasting change. And we must trust the Lord who made the promise about your household to move on your behalf as you fight. Like Abraham, we must face the fact of our own condition and be strengthened in our faith. Against all hope, standing in hope. 
but fighting to the very end as we do it. The truth is we often find ourselves in the exact position that we are preaching on this morning. So often we discover that we are faithless, trying to make something happen in our own strength and not trusting our king for the present or for the future. Man, can I do that about godly subjects? We also so often discover that we are cowards, running away from the fight and devoid of the courage at times to even enter the battle. Rather, just avoid the whole thing and pretend it didn't happen. Stopping short of the diligent force that it takes to produce real, lasting change. Oh, come on now. Guys, what must we do about this? It's a good question, isn't it? What is the cure for these sinful states that we are undoubtedly going to find ourselves in in the future? We want to say this morning that David was a man who had negative experiences in both of these categories that we're presenting this morning. Yep. And yet, he had a testimony for all of history that was both full of faith and full of fight. How is that possible? Turn with us to Psalm 38. We're going to begin in verse 17 here. You guys ready? For I am about to fall, and my pain is ever with me. Think you have arthritis. <laughs> Listen to where his pain is coming from. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled, troubled by my sin. Thanks, David here is troubled over his sin. He is wrestling, he is fighting, and it is producing action in him. That is an outward, open, vocalized confession. He is wrestling and fighting for the faith. David was a warrior, and he knew what it was to fight with his own condition, to fight with the enemies of God, to fight for the people of God. Now here's Psalm 130, verses 3 through 8. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you guys David understood it he had the revelation faith in his forgiveness it carried him into faithful service faith in his forgiveness it also carried him into faithful fight for the Lord God Almighty let's continue in verse 5 I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Thanks, as we mentioned earlier, David was a warrior. He was a man who took action. But he's also a man of priestly sensitivity, both to his own condition and the promises of God. He possessed real faith, and it drove him to fight. We told you earlier today that we would tell you about the Lord's desire this morning. His desires are for a people who are troubled over their own sinful state, who are at war for righteousness' sake, fighting for holiness, and 
who depend entirely on the Lord Almighty's redemptive power to move as they fight. For those who have faith in him. This is what allows us to serve him. And we do have a firm hope for the future. Today, we do not have time to cover seven specific songs that my psalms and my brother's going to remind me what they're called. <laughs> there are seven psalms in this book. They're called the seven great penitential psalms in the word. Seven great penitential psalms. You would yes. do well to be aware of the tension in these seven. They're actually filled with the fight for holiness and the redemptive empowerment for those who fear the Lord. Hallelujah. Look at this slide. These are the seven penitential psalms. We have Psalm 6. We have Psalm 32. Psalm 38, which we just read an excerpt from. We have Psalm 51. Thursday. Psalm 102. Yeah, Psalm 51. We were in Thursday. We have Psalm 102. Psalm 130 that we were just reading this morning. And also Psalm 143. Guys, the truth is, is that in every one of these psalms, it is required that the man of God reckon with his own condition. And then he goes to war. He fights with his own unholiness. And he learns to cling to a saving faith in Yahweh God. And the reckoning is always what is needed to begin to get this right in our own lives as well. Among the psalmist David is a prime example. He both can recognize that he was sinful at birth, and he knows what it is to have clean hands before God had declared them to be clean in the first place. Am I the only one who's ever wondered how the same author can write, I am sinful at birth, and then, Lord, save me according to the cleanness of my own hands? Same guy who wrote Psalm 51. It's because he had a reckoning with God, one that is of his own condition compared to his holy character. And he both was willing to fight for what God said and have faith in what God was and would do in him. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We, LCM, need to have the fight to affect real lasting change. The faith not to move or fret while we stand on God's promised final outcome, both for us and for our homes. These psalms show us how to reckon with our own condition, but become more by the strength that God provides. We want to show you this in the Gospels. This is Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Church, our reckoning this morning, the reckoning that we must come into contact with today is to take up our own cross. The one the Lord has called us to carry, not for our sake, but for his name's sake, for the sake of our families and for the world around us. We can't avoid facing a daily reckoning with our own condition. It must happen daily that we reckon who we are and the condition that we have in our flesh. 
Not one of us in this room is worthy like our Savior was. And yet, through faith, he credits us with right standing so that our offering on that cross, it's pleasing. It's even filling up what is lacking and providing redemption for those around us through faith in his promises. Yeah, that's better than you thought. The perfect sacrificial lamb Nick just told you about calls you to pick up your cross and do the same. Well, what merit is your sacrifice as a spoiled, sinful offering? Other than the fact that he has redeemed you. So you both have to fight to pick it up, and it requires faith that he is making your offering worth something. Men and women, you must daily reckon with your own sin so that you will be able to fight until the end and rely on faith in a holy and yet merciful God. Look, if you've been at this church a little while, you know we do not preach about tolerance to sin. That is not what we're discussing. We're talking about a God who will help you as you try. This is what he has called you to, LCM. He is the one who calls things into being that currently are not. He will call the holiness that we are not yet into being as we fight with all of our might, holding no reserve, and are strengthened in our faith. Come on now. Romans 6 is something we want to visit with you. Come on now. Romans 6, starting in verse 5, says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Somebody say amen to that promise. We fight in this life to meet him in the same kind of death that he experienced. And our faith is in the God who can resurrect it all over again. Goes on in verse 6 and says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Somebody say was. Was. So that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Daily we choose to face our sin. The sin of our house. And we must not let sin rule us, but rather fight to rule it. In genuine, real faith, we have been set free from sin. It's just a matter of time, saints. Just a matter of time before the process is completed. In the meantime, we will not tolerate any measure of sin in our midst because we've been set free. We cannot allow the faithlessness of Saul to deprive us of the sanctification that is on its way. Man, how many times does Samuel arrive right after your faith failed? We cannot allow the apathy of Eli to keep us from driving sin out completely. No more stopping until it's driven out. Our king is blessing us with the ability to see right now, to have clarity right now. I think another brother called it sifting this morning, exposing what is in the sand. We cannot ignore it and damn ourselves to eternal blindness because there comes a point when you can no longer see. In verses 8 through 12, we find the point of the passage that we're reading. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. 
But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way. Somebody say in the same way. In the same way. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. This is curious, isn't it? As we read, is it don't reign or is it count it dead? Which one is it? Church, we cannot just faith the fight. We actually have to fight. And church, we certainly also can't fight the faith that would be worthless in God's sight and render our hope worthless as well. We must reckon with the two realities. We must put forth trust-grounded obedience in both of them. And when we do, so it will produce a growing holiness in our lives. Come on. Somebody say fight. Fight. The good fight. The good fight. Of faith. Paul admonished us to fight. You need faith to be able to fight correctly. Jesus also give us, gives us clear and piercing direction. Says things like, you're in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You need both the faith that comes through engaging with the scriptures and the fight that the power of God in you produces. Believer, you can start your race with only one of these. You can start your race with only one of these. Most of us have. Only one in any substantive measure. But you cannot finish without both of them working mightily in you and through you. In fact, we would like you to listen to a tale of two more houses that we once knew. I once knew a man who lost his faith in the team and the process, and the God who arranged both of those things. He was a son of God and born again with a fighting spirit. He fought and survived the spiritual death of many around him. He fought and survived physical attacks on his body that should have taken any man. He fought and survived the loss of a natural son and of his beloved bride. He fought and endured difficulty in the secular arena and proved to be like Joseph everywhere that he went. He stood loyal to his fellow soldiers in Christ and fought by their side when all others fled. He became a father to the fatherless and was a grandfather to many in the room. The truth of the matter is that his love for the Lord stirred him to a great fight. Frankly, I miss having him at our side when we are in difficult circumstances. More than in one way, he saved my life personally. His willingness to fight brought him far into the kingdom. Like Saul, he became a king and possessed leadership qualities. But in the end, he did not have the faith to wait the appointed time. Saints, you can start your race with fight and grit and you will get somewhere. You will progress and even win battles. Being crowned king or becoming a leader... But without the faith to stand in the Lord's promises, your fight will prove to be worthless in the end. You cannot finish the race with just fight. Like David, we must reckon with our own condition. That reckoning 
when done correctly, when done repeatedly, when done in an ongoing fashion, will produce genuine holiness, cleanness of hands, credited righteousness, and grace and power over sin. Faith without fight or fight without faith. Both are equally worthless at the end of the matter. Having one without the other and not working to develop both of these kingdom necessities in your life. Somebody say, both. You get to the terminal point where you just want to forget about all that happened, all the difficulties of the wars that you had now that you no longer have faith. And you're convinced that choosing to live the rest of your life in deception and ease is the only thing you have left. We're going to revisit what Pastor Judah just said, but first, I once knew a man who was very similar to Eli in many aspects. He was chosen by the Lord to be a minister. He had a real anointing as an ambassador of God who saw many people healed and delivered by his own hands. He inherited a son of this house who did not come from his own body, and he did a good job raising him in the ways of the Lord. Amen. He rebuked his inherited son for his wicked behavior on a regular basis. He also willingly accepted the Lord's discipline in his life and the correction that came his way. Church, the truth of the matter is he actually displayed great faith. Faith to be delivered from a wicked and corrupt way of life. Faith to believe that the Lord had a spouse for him and would see him married. Faith that the Lord would give him children even if they weren't from his own body. Church, faith that the Lord would do many miraculous things in his life. Yep. And the Lord did. He accomplished all of those things. So why is that man no longer standing with us today? The man that I once knew had faith, but he never truly learned how to fight. The truth is, is that like that man, you start your race with the faith to see all of these miraculous things transpire in your life. But if you do not learn how to truly fight, you will not finish the work that God began inside of you. I want you to blame this next section of the sermon at 58 minutes on Pastor Parsons. But the reality is that... Uh, we have an instructional video for you that came from uh, our own studies. Sound Booth, if you would help us out. Ignorance is bliss, he said. I don't want to remember a thing, he said. How could he, after the experiences that he had? He had discovered the truth. He was walking shoulder to shoulder with those who were living in the realities of the real kingdom. And yet, he got to the point where he wanted out. And nothing was going to stop him at that point. He even tried to burn the ones that he loved the most on his way out. Just merely the thought of this is inconceivable to most of you. But we want to say this morning that we've seen this exact scenario transpire time after time after time. Sin that you know about in this room 
but are unwilling to fight until the end over that sin leads to spiritual blindness. And you become both Eli and the man in the video. See, while it may feel unthinkable, I've been here long enough to watch patterns that are like patterns of the Shofatim, where if you are only willing to brush over to rebuke, but not go as far as it takes to uproot sin in your household, you will end up there eventually. Promises that you have about the final outcome are not faithfully trusted in the midst of battle, or not faithfully, faithfully trusted and adhered to. They lead to disqualification and the consulting of other spiritual powers because you just aren't faithful enough. Only knowing the fight or only knowing the faith, it will get you started. Praise God, that's why we're here. But you will never finish that way. Saul, who only got to know the fight, he didn't finish. Eli, who only got to know the faith, he didn't finish. I once knew a man who had learned how to fight but never developed a saving kind of faith. He is not going to finish. I once knew a man who had a saving faith but never learned how to truly fight. He is not going to finish. But the better question is, how about you? We need to make another turn this morning together. Church, the truth is, is that today can be your reckoning day. The day where your eyes are truly open to your actual condition. The day where you realize that you've been walking with a saving faith, but you need to learn how to fight. Or the day where you realize that you've learned to fight, but you do not have the saving faith to live in the realities of what God will accomplish in your life. Today must be your reckoning day because you will not be just another story of a man that we once knew. Listen to Paul's wrestling with our subject this morning and the life-giving direction that he gave to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. For brevity's sake, we're going to get a few verses out of this larger chapter. 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross was the method with which Christ made a public spectacle of the demonic realm and triumphed. His call to take up our cross daily. This is daily repentance. This is a daily reckoning with the Lord, which produces both faith faith and fight in you. This is what causes you to be able to make a public spectacle of the demonic realm. And it is what will cause you to triumph at the end of the day. Verse 16 goes on to say, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, 
supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Guys, spiritual language regarding the faith or the fight, it will not save you from being disconnected to the head. We need to reckon this morning with both the faith and the fight that Christ has called us to. And being able to verbalize these things is not the same as reckoning with your own lack before God and being able to experience His supernatural empowerment because more than ever, that is what you're becoming. Saint spiritual language alone puffs up. But love is transparent and it builds up. Like David, we must be bold. We must reckon with the fight that is our own condition and possess the faith that our Father will ultimately make us more than we currently are. We need both. We need both in our lives and our families desperately need it. We need to hold to His promises and unwavering belief and fight the battles He has called us to until there is real, lasting change. The Apostle Paul was filled with faith and fight. Passages like Acts 16 prove his unwavering faith in what the Lord had spoken to him and his fight to endure the beatings and chains that accompanied it with joy. Galatians 1 verse 8 warns us that other versions of the gospel, half gospels if you will, are coming and have come upon the earth. We must have both faith and fight to finish in the end of the matter. Verse 20 continues, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Spiritual language has a way of taking the place of a real reckoning with your sin. Since you died with Christ is what the passage says. I challenge you this morning, did you? Are you picking up your cross daily like he did? Not doing this shows up in two main ways. One, blowing up and making a big deal out of small things. And two, offense that begins to spring up toward other people. You know, I can tell you that this week, I have personally come to the disturbing reality of my own self-righteousness. When I felt shalom crumbling in my own home, I was immediately fighting for that shalom to be restored, but focused on others instead of fighting for the shalom that I must learn to display. So that I'm responsible for the righteous example that they are able to follow. Come on, I know that you're with me, church. I didn't pick up my own Nabal card first. In fact, I picked up Abigail's and highlighted Nabal's. That means that I personally have been staring at the cross of Christ and rejecting it while demanding that others that are closest to me, that they pick it up and walk with it daily. Like my own personal experience this morning, today, too, can be my reckoning day just like it's yours. Today can begin actions that display your deep conviction that every day is my own reckoning day 
and I will not fail to fight for shalom in myself and those around me, and I will not fail to display a saving faith that my faith and the faith of those around me will grow and be formed to deeper and greater depths. So we're nearing a close. I want to tell you what this message was born out of was recognizing jealousy within me, overt faithlessness, manipulation, most of which surrounded things that God said needed to happen. See, it was a fight that was not present with faithfulness and faith in the one who would bring about the promise. You know, for me, all too often, the end does justify the means. But as I reckon with the Almighty God, He is helping me crucify that nature. He's teaching me what it is to be filled with faith about His outcome and what He says about me now while I am still at war with sin and an ongoing nature becoming aware of it. Wouldn't to death sinful soul like sacrifices? Ones that made me feel better as if I wasn't unprepared for the battle. Oh my, I haven't sought the Lord's favor. Overwhelmed at the depravity of my own heart and mind leading to sinful inaction at times. I was in desperate need of faith-induced grace. Faith-induced power over sin. And he answered my call. Not five years ago. Yesterday morning. And he met with me there. And he began to teach me again what it looks like to both have faith in him and to fight. If you can bear with us for a few minutes, there's a closing that I believe uh, will help you see the world rightly. If you want, we can just be really harsh at the end or we could teach you what to do with it now. I would prefer to teach you. When the Spirit is highlighting the same thing to both you and the families that are around you, you need to immediately consider the fact that spiritual blindness may have blinded you up to this point, but he has now given you sight so that you can fight until it has been removed. When your activity looks like I'm being busy for the work of the Lord, I am fighting against my sin. And your awareness of your own sin is growing and it's causing you to become cloudy and feeling as if you can accomplish nothing. You need to remember that you can't. That you did nothing. You did not save yourself, but the God who saved you then will save you now if you cling to Him. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says something that is so interesting that moves my brother and I. Speaking about a spirit-filled church, that knew the word, that preached the gospel, said, I promised you to one husband that you might be a pure virgin to him. Now, the apostle Paul's not deluded. He knows very well that he's speaking to a mixed group of married virgins, single people that are filled with sin and not one of them was pure. But nonetheless, it's the promise that he made to Christ and we have made a similar promise to you. He was concerned that just like Eve was deceived, that other gospels were beginning to deceive people who really did love the Lord because they were not holding on to the full gospel. They'd picked the part that they liked, that they were most inclined towards, that they were the most naturally gifted in, like Saul and his sword or Eli and his prayer. And that it was going to cut them off from their husband. 
Saints, you're promised to one husband. And we spent too much time, easily enough, putting up with half versions of the gospel, half versions in our own practice of the things that are preached from this pulpit. We need both the faith and fight to finish well in this house. The astounding truth, men, is that your job is to present your wives as spotless and holy before yourselves. Is that a difficult task? That wasn't the astounding truth, though. The astounding truth is that you are the bride of Christ. He is the husband. He is the groom. And you are the bride. Men and women, if you will come to him fully, committed to fight until there is lasting change, and are fully committed to faith in him who can save you and make you clean, then something special will happen. Nick's going to take us through a few passages in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says the following. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. Fragrant offering. And sacrifice to God. Come down to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Jump down to 32. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Church, if you don't have the faith to believe that he can do this for you, for you, then why would you ever expect that you could do this for your wife? If you're not willing to fight until you are spotless, until you're blameless, then why do you ever believe that you could do this for your family? Men and women, if you, like Abigail, are willing to abandon all of your house, whether it be faithless or fightless house, leave Nabal and journey to the house of the son of David, he will make you radiant. Today we put down fear and faithlessness. Today we choose not to stop halfway on the journey, but we walk in both faith and fight until we reach the son of David. So today we're at a close, but we're going to take communion before we leave. Brother Linton will lead us through that later. We really need to come to grips with the fact spirit-filled men and women, we don't believe that Christ will wash us and make us radiant. Or on the other hand, that we don't need to be washed and made radiant because it's already done. So I don't know what your particular bent is today, but if you come to the altar or if you sit in your seat, I really don't care which, the God of all creation will meet with you in either place. But it has much more to do with the condition of your own heart. Are you going to cry out for supernatural faith and recognition that you haven't had it? Are you going to cry out and ask for a supernatural fight and recognition that you haven't had it? 
But either way, if we are to be washed as his bride, then we have to recognize our deep need for the washing. But when we do, we will experience what it is like to be made into a radiant church, one free of guilt, free of wrinkle, free of blemish. It's an astounding thing. We can preach a sermon like this or do a Tuesday evening and talk about generational Christians that are blind and all the little girls in the front row that are unmarried are the ones that are affected. But we were talking about the generational Christians that are married in the room. I don't know which part of this you're hearing or not, but I'm asking you to look at your husband that is Christ, who is calling you to his side, not pushing you away, but saying you must be made holy. The two things that we need are both fight and faith. You need to determine what has been lacking, but come to the one whom you can be restored by. Stand to your feet. Father, we speak to you, both as our father and our husband. Lord, your will is our command. Lord, we say no more being distant from you, no more faithlessness and fightlessness. Lord, we ask that you might make us like you in this house. Make us the radiant bride that you deserve, Holy One. Lord, we commit to fighting until the end. Lord, and summoning faith to believe you and your word as true. Father, meet with us in this place. 